G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. And as you know, by now, we are the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. And speaking of questions, and also speaking of giants, I, I can't remember how tall you are, Tim, but you're taller than me. I have a question. When are we going to start actually reading the Bible and doing this study of Genesis 4? I mean, you read the chapter last time, but we didn't do any study. And this is like our fourth episode. We haven't had any Hebrew. We haven't talked about symbolism or ancient Near Eastern culture, any of that stuff. I'm starting to think you're just going to waffle through this whole season. Waffle? I don't waffle. Oh, I think you do. You're a waffler from way back. You can and often do waffle on i'm not a waffler you are a champion waffler if there was a state championship for waffling you'd have won it 40 years running oh all right so so can we just and you know what you're not just a waffler you faff you faff about you can faff with the best of them you're a waffler and a faffler you're always faffing about waffling on uh look i'm trying to get started here can you quit faffing and waffling so we can do this our audience is looking for high quality content here they want expertly curated, top-shelf scholarship, insightful commentary, and higher-brow wit. They're not looking for the Lano and Woodley routine. These are discerning listeners, Chris. The cream of the crop. The creme de la creme. The cream always rises to the top. I'm running out of dairy-related cliches. You get the idea, though, right? It smells like dairy air indeed. And yet, here they are listening to us. So stop faffing about. Stop waffling on. Just get on with it, would you? All right, all right. Without further ado, here we go. Hope you're paying attention. We're going to start with our reading, as is our want. This is Genesis 4, verses 1 to 7. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, and you must rule over it. Okay, so to start with, there's a lot to talk about in verse 1, and it is not serpent seed doctrine. You know, we covered that already, and we're not going back there, and we said we were not going to talk about that because we were not going to talk about things that are not in the text. So with that in mind, let's read verse 1 again, and this time we will not read anything that is not in the text original text here it is adam knew eve his wife and she conceived and bore cain saying i have gotten a man the lord uh tim i think uh i think you left a bit out there looks like that doesn't it no doubt you've noticed that i did not say the phrase with the help of in between man and the lord if your bible includes notations and that sort of thing you'll probably find a notation there to say that the words the help of are supplied to help this sentence to make sense. But it's important to note that the word with 
is also supplied. The original text does not say, I have gotten a man with the Lord. It says, I have gotten a man, the Lord. It's possible that those words were added later by Jewish redactors because they actually had a tradition that this text shows how God is involved in the creation of every child. And they definitely don't want to acknowledge that the biblical text actually suggests that God could be a human being. That would be a bit too close to Jesus. Yeah, but hang on, are we calling Cain the Lord here, as in Yahweh? Does she think that Cain is God? Oh, now, I can already hear people getting angry and switching off, but if there is anybody still listening, I'll explain what I mean. There's a lemma in the text, which is not a spoken word, but a grammatical mark to indicate when a word is followed by the direct object that it refers to, which would be a noun. You'll see it transliterated into English as et, et. Although, as I say, you don't actually say it. The direct object marker occurs between connected terms to show that the two words relate to one another directly. So we're in Genesis 4, verse 1, and at this point we've already been through three whole chapters of the text. And this particular grammatical marker has appeared 49 times in our reading so far, and we didn't make a big deal about it because it's non-controversial. It always gets translated the same way. There's no issue with it until now. So why is that? What's, what's different this time? Well, this time, the translators want to say that it means something else. They want to turn it into the word with. And they can do that because in much later biblical passages, that is a legitimate usage of an identical lemma. As an example, the word beat can mean to win against, like in racing, or beat as in thrash with a stick. So it can be used a couple of different ways, but it's the context that should determine how it's used. The pattern of usage established by this author here in Genesis is not consistent with the application of the word with. So in the interest of consistency and remembering that we've already done this 49 times without even noticing, we need to render that marker in the text exactly the same way and consider it as nothing more than an indicator. That the terms in this sentence are directly connected. When Eve says that she's gotten a man, the Lord... We need to try and understand that expression rather than modify it so that it makes sense to us. Okay, so people are probably still mad, and I'm going to continue anyway, even if no one's listening at this point, because I can just about hear people screaming right now, well, of course you're modified to make sense. That's what translators do. Well, to an extent I agree, but we have to tread carefully with that one. We have to remember that it might make sense to you, but that doesn't mean it's correct. What we really need to establish is how we're going to arrive at a correct interpretation. And the answer to that is literary context. So that's an easy fix. You just read a bit more of the text, try to make sense of it as a whole. Remember how I've mentioned many times that the chapter divisions and the way the text is broken up into verses is an artificial construct imposed on the text by later editors of the Bible. Keeping in mind that we need to view this first verse of Genesis 4 as a continuation of the narrative from Genesis 3, I've already stressed how the author is at pains to make sure that we view these stories as connected because we're still dealing with the archetypal man. Now we understand that something in Genesis 3 should be helping us to understand what's going on here at the beginning of chapter 4. So we might have potentially misunderstood this part of Genesis 4 because it's been artificially separated from the previous chapter? Yeah, yeah, kind of like how we put an artificial separation between seasons three and four of the podcast and so people can't remember now what we were talking about in season three so i need to preface this by explaining another 
hermeneutical trap that we often fall into, and again, we've talked about this in previous episodes, and that's the problem of late interpretations of the text. We quite often read our New Testament as though it takes priority over the Old Testament. So when a New Testament author uses an Old Testament text in a certain way, which differs from the intent of the original author toward his first audience, we have the tendency to disregard the original author and his message to his first audience in preference to the later interpretation provided by an author in the Second Temple period or in the Church Fathers. What does that mean? It means that we have the tendency to read the interpretations gathered by much later authors backward into this early text so that we miss the point that the original author was trying to make. As an example, let's talk about creation order and the deception of the woman in the Garden of Eden. In the New Testament, we have authors using Genesis 3 to tell us that women should not be teaching in the church. Keeping in mind that there were particular local circumstances relevant to that context, and we discussed that in the relevant episode last season, so I'm not going to go over it again. Let's come back to the immediate context for which Genesis 3 was written and recognise that this passage wasn't about authority structures or who was allowed to teach things. So the New Testament authors have repurposed that passage for their own application. We're okay with it since it's canonised in Scripture, but we're looking for the original application of the text here. So we're going to read a bit from Genesis 3 again, and we're going to see how it connects with Genesis 4 verse 1 and shows us how to interpret that verse. We're looking for internal consistency. This is from the New American Standard Bible. Genesis 3:16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, I picked that version just because it recognises that the desire could be rendered as against or contrary to, or it could be toward. And this version chooses toward, which I think is appropriate. We'll see why in a moment. But it's not a perfect translation because it falls into line with every other translation I could lay my hands on, which all make the choice of translating ish in the text as husband rather than man. Okay, so the Hebrew there, ish, means man. And yeah, we will often see that as husband in our translation. So, of course, I'm aware that often the word husband is actually appropriate and preferred in many situations. But at this point, it would be wise of us to leave the interpretive option of simply using man here on the table for discussion. So that means that we can read this verse as communicating that the woman's desire would be for her man who would rule over her. That man isn't necessarily her husband. Uh, say what? I'm not suggesting that Eve is unfaithful or anything like that. I'm suggesting that the seed of the woman referred to in verse 15 would have been understood by Eve as a man that she will bring forth who would reinstate order in the world and thus rule over her and all loyal to Yahweh. Not a husband and wife kind of relationship. Remember that the text just uses the word for man and we have traditionally understood that as husband because we were focused on Adam and not anticipating Cain. Hmm, and I reckon most people would not have noticed that. Well, traditionally, we've made so much fuss over the apparent marriage of Adam and Eve that we've been reluctant to see the terms for man and woman as anything other than husband and wife, even when the context suggests otherwise. Yeah, wow, that's, uh, that's a big difference. So, following this pronouncement of destiny spoken by Yahweh to the woman, Eve is living in expectation that she is going to give birth to the person who's going to fix this whole situation of corruption and exile, 
and in the absence of any specific information as to who this could be and when it would happen, she quite logically assumes that it's going to be her firstborn son. Eve believes that the Lord himself will become incarnate through her womb, and her son will be the promised deliverer, Yahweh in the flesh. You can see how this would lead her to say something like, she has gotten or acquired a man, rather than brought forth or born a man. So, even though Cain was brought into the world in the usual way, that doesn't stop Eve from expecting God to manifest in her son. Well, there were planes to catch and bills to pay. Dirty walk while I wasn't away. He was talking for I knew it. And as he grew, he said, shut up, Tim, get on with the podcast. Sorry. We already knew that the promise of Genesis 3.15 would result in the expectation of a deliverer. But not many of us would have been prepared to entertain the thought that she might have actually thought that it was Cain. You might not be convinced that it actually was the case, but let's go back to our text in Genesis 4, verse 1. Read it with that in mind. And again, we're going to be reading this without the additional words supplied by editors and translators. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man, the Lord. And again, Genesis 3, verse 16, Your desire shall be for your man, and he shall rule over you. Are you seeing it yet? The catch here is that this destiny pronounced by God was given, as the author states it, to the woman. This is an archetypal story, remember? So the audience has led in on something that this particular woman, whose name is Eve, did not know. The deliverer, who would rule over her, was not going to come in her day, not specifically from her own body. And we've talked at great length before about genealogies and the way that they work, so I won't get into that again. But the message communicated by the author to his audience is that a woman, any woman, could potentially bring forth the Messiah. It's easy to see that in retrospect, but for Eve, it was not so clear. Though she had a lot of hope invested in Cain. I said I wasn't going to go back and talk more about all this serpent seed theology, but can you see how this reading of the text that I'm proposing simply makes it impossible to use this verse as some kind of a foundational text? to suggest that a divine being had sex with Eve and produced some sort of antichrist figure. Can you see it? All right, we're going to move on from there. I'm going to calm down, but I'm going to be showing you something later on in this text before we get to the end of this episode that will make you think twice in case you were still in doubt about the expectation on Cain. Because I think the text makes it quite clear that the original intention for Cain was that he would indeed be the one to set everything right. But I have to clarify, of course, that I'm not saying anything to the effect that Cain is God or the Christ or anything like that. And I need to clarify that because that is exactly the kind of error that resulted in the overreaction toward reading Desire for Your Husband in Genesis 3. We were so desperate to see Jesus in Genesis 3, we completely modified the reading so that if it wasn't Jesus, it couldn't be anyone. Do you have any idea how many women have been told that God has cursed them to desire a husband? On the basis of that reading of the text, we may never know how damaging that idea has been. Cain isn't Jesus, but he is the guy that everyone's looking to, to make things right. He is the guy who's supposed to represent Yahweh. So that's what you were getting at before, right? Not that Cain was God, but that Cain was supposed to represent God. Yeah, that's right. Even hoped to see God represented in Cain. Moving into verse 2, we find that Abel is born to Eve as well. And again, the text is clear that this was a result of her relationship with the man. We still can't call him Adam, in case your translation is throwing that on. The author is placing emphasis on Cain as the elder brother here, the one who was here first. 
and who has the legitimate status as firstborn. He's the one carrying the expectation of destiny. Abel's just the little brother. Cain's name means gotten or acquired. We see that in Eve's words at his birth. The words sound similar. It's a picture of inheritance. His job was to work the soil or serve the ground, as it's more literally rendered, uh, like his father. He's inherited the family business. The story is doing double duty here. It's undoubtedly a real story here of agrarian life in prehistoric times, but our author is using it to tell us more. Of course he is. If you learned anything from the last three seasons of the podcast, you know there's always more than meets the eye in this text. It's like an episode of Transformers. You think it's going to be one thing, and then... <laughs> Turns out to be something else. Oh, that was a bad Transformers noise. Apologies. We just keep rolling it out. But that's what we do on this podcast. You know, everybody keeps talking about how deep the biblical text is and how rich it is and how many layers of meaning there are, and yet you hear so little of it actually explained by anyone. And once again, the critical scholars are going to tell us things like, this story was just written to explain why life is difficult and why people are always uncomfortable and why everything is hard. Like, it's so unfathomable to ancient people that life, just is what it is. Modern critics just don't seem to have any frame of reference that enables them to think like a person who lived before the Industrial Revolution. Nobody's asking questions like this. They're just not. People in the ancient world were more concerned with how to get on the good side of the gods rather than wondering why working the ground in a desert is difficult. So what does it actually mean to work the ground? Uh, Actually, didn't we talk about that last season? We did look at this before with Cain's father in chapter three, but for those who came in late, we are talking about the ground as a picture of civilization. People are the dust of the ground. The ground itself is the cultivated land, the society in which we live. Cain's job, and again, I really hate that translation, work the ground, is to serve the ground, to serve the people as his father was also meant to do. This servitude, this service, is tending, caring, providing for the ground, looking after those under his care, and yes, that does include his little brother. Speaking of Abel, the name Abel in Hebrew is Evel. Uh, the, the pausal form, I'll explain that, uh, is, is Habel. We have this um, pausal form means the way that it is said at the end of a sentence. So you have Havel, where normally it would be Hevel. Uh, so it's a, it's a grammatical thing. Uh, we have the same thing happens with Lamech. Everyone, everyone says Lamech. It's actually Lamech, but because of this grammatical anomaly, you get to the end of the sentence that introduces Lamech, and they have to use the A. So it becomes Lamech. And then the translators just go, well, let's just keep it the same every time. So they never change it back to Lemmy. So, uh, yeah, it's just a curious little thing there. Uh, actually, I haven't been pronouncing these words the way that the Hebrew authors uh, would have you know, intended because uh, it's very different to what we see in the text. It would be Cain and Hevel. Um, so, yeah, you know, the the, the word... Evel means breath or vapor. It also means vanity. And, and you'll see that employed in the book of Ecclesiastes in the very first line of the book. And, uh, I'm going to talk more about this in a future episode. So we'll hang on to a little bit of mystery about that and dig into it later. The meaning of the name isn't explained in the text. 
because it's a common word in Hebrew that doesn't need to be explained to the Hebrew-speaking audience, obviously. Symbolically speaking, breath or vapour is what proceeds from the mouth, like a spoken word. But the author is also trying to capture for us the fleeting nature of the life of this man who disappears from the biblical record just as quickly as he appears for just a moment. His life is in vain and his name reflects that vanity. To this author, Abel, the keeper of sheep, represents the voice of God as a shepherd guiding his flock. Abel's faithfulness is represented by his portrayal as a good shepherd. And yeah, I am being deliberately provocative there in light of Jesus. Good shepherd, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. The shepherd raises obedient sheep who hear his voice and follow. Thus the life of Abel paints a picture for us of the life of the prophets who brought the breath of God to his people by declaring his word and who were killed by those in power who wished for them to be silenced. Cain, on the other hand, serves the ground which does not come when it's called. What he gets from the ground has to be taken. It has to be acquired. You see what I did there? Not given willingly. We can see that this interpretation is followed by the biblical authors because when we turn to the book of Hebrews, famous chapter 11 passage about faith, we find that Abel is commended by God for his faith. Now you might wonder how that follows from what we've just unpacked here in Genesis. Let's read the passage in Hebrews first. It's Hebrews 11, 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. You'll notice that when we go back to Genesis 4 and read the passage, there's no mention of faith or faithfulness, as it should be more correctly translated. But how does the author of Hebrews arrive at the conclusion that faith was the reason for the acceptance of Abel's sacrifice and the rejection of Cain's? It's because the author of Hebrews, as Jew in the Second Temple period, was able to understand the symbolism in the Genesis 4 account. He recognizes that a gift that comes willingly and obediently rather than having been taken by force and presented out of obligation, it's far more acceptable as an offering. And we have to think of offerings in terms of a gift intended to heal a broken relationship, presented to God to show faithfulness to him. Not that the offering fixes the problem of sin. It's not about that. But it does show the attitude of the heart in an act of obedience. This is something I talk about quite a lot in my book, Answers to Giant Questions. What God is looking for is faithfulness, allegiance, and obedience. And an offering in this context provides all three. The Hebrew word for offering, which is used here, mincha, is used consistently throughout the book of Genesis to describe a gift given with the intent of appeasement, which recognizes and acknowledges the broken relationship between the two parties and goes some way towards showing a desire to be reconciled. This is what God wants to see. But both uh, brothers offered a gift that is spoken of in the same terms, though, didn't they? That's true. That's actually a really good observation that most people tend to miss, and that means that we need to be looking beyond just what was offered. We want to find out what the difference was between the two gifts. So we understand when we read Hebrews 11.4 that it was the faith of Abel that made the offering acceptable. It was not the gift. And that's really important because it tells us that this isn't just a case of God likes barbecue. Look what happens when you bring salad. You don't make friends with salad. You don't make friends with salad. You don't make friends with salad. I'm certainly not friends with salad. But seriously, it wasn't a situation where there was a particular prescribed offering and Cain brought the wrong thing. And it wasn't just a case of God saying, you know what, I just like Abel better and I don't need a reason because I'm God. 
that might fly if you're a Calvinist or an atheist looking for a mean and nasty God, but that's not the interpretation given by faithful Jewish believers. And we see that in the book of Hebrews because it says, by faith, Abel offered. It wasn't about the gift, and it wasn't about God playing favourites. It was about the faithfulness of Abel's heart. Sure, but but hang on a minute. Didn't you say before that we can get into trouble um, reading late interpretations back into these early texts? Like, How do we know that the connections made between Hebrews 11.4 and Genesis 4.3 are legit? And what about that other example that you mentioned about women not being permitted to teach in the church on the basis of Genesis 3? And you're saying that people change the reading of Genesis 3 to avoid a problematic understanding of Cain? as a promised deliverance. So how does any of that and all of that make sense? Uh, that, that, those are legitimate questions, and I'm glad you raised them, although uh, it doesn't have a very simple answer. About the simplest I can make that is really that it just comes down to biblical usage and internal consistency. If a New Testament author uses the Old Testament in a certain way, then we accept that as legitimate and an inspired use of that text. We don't accept people changing the interpretation based on translations. So putting extra words in to smooth over a translation and then using that to build doctrine is bad practice. If a New Testament author repurposes a given text, like Paul did with Genesis 3, in regard to the teaching ministry of women, that's okay. There are actually reasons why that works when we consider the internal consistency of Paul's logic in the broader context of Scripture. He's using creation order and archetypes to make that point. And if New Testament authors use the text in line with the intent of the original author, like what we see here with Genesis 4 and Hebrews 11, that's fine too. We consider that all scripture is inspired by God, and as long as it is a scriptural use of scripture, we're okay with it. Yeah, okay, that, that makes sense, but I'm still not sure I see what the author of Hebrews is seeing here. So the author of Hebrews is getting that insight about the two brothers from the description of the offerings and the occupation of the brothers who brought them. Cain is out there serving the ground, taking from it an offering that doesn't come willingly. This is ancient Near Eastern kingship presented here. This is the legacy of the first man in Eden. King is meant to serve the people, but to sustain himself, he has to take from them. Hence, he takes the produce of the ground, and from what he takes, as a result of the exercise of force, he presents his offering. Abel is different. He's the shepherd. He calls, and his sheep following him willingly obediently and with the expectation of good things from their shepherd. Abel's offering is a demonstration of faithfulness. But both of these men are represented by the offerings that they bring, and that's how it's supposed to be. Gift represents your heart attitude. So we can see why God accepted Abel's offering, but how do we know that the offering was actually accepted? Like how do we know that the offering that, that Cain brought was not? Why are they even offering sacrifices in the first place, actually? Well, I did mention that there was some acknowledgement that things were not right between God and the humans. So that in itself is probably a good enough reason to want to present an offering. But it doesn't explain why Cain would bring an offering given the state of his heart in contrast to that of his brother. I think it would be fair to say that Cain doesn't seem to be too worried about other people's feelings or the state of his relationships with others, at least as long as he has the upper hand. But it's the fact that they both brought offerings spoken of in the same terms that makes me think there was something else at play behind the motivation to present offerings of appeasement to God. Ooh, suspense, intrigue, hidden motives. Mm, I'm going to read a section of the text that we only glossed over. This time I'm going to apply the Hebrew a bit more literally and directly so that we can see how the choice of language brings a meaning to the text that is obscured in the translation. So this is chapter 4. 
beginning in the second part of verse 2. We're going to read halfway through verse 5. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. When those days came to an end, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord was attentive to Abel and his offering, but in Cain and his offering he found no pleasure. Okay, so what just happened there? Uh, so what we've done is we've removed that translator's gloss that says something like, in the course of time, or, and it came to pass, or, and it happened in those days, or something like that. And we've replaced it with something a lot more faithful to the original Hebrew that's actually there. And if we read it carefully, we find that it says that there was an end of days. And that's an odd turn of phrase, which requires some context to make sense of it. Fortunately for us, the context is supplied in the previous verse, which is why it says that Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. What the text is telling us is that those days came to an end. It's literally a boundary or a point at which there's a transition to a different time, a time of famine. No more flocks, no more crops. This is the pattern of life in the Middle East. You have good years and you have bad years. When things are good, you make bank, and when things are bad, you're on food stamps, so to speak. But there are no stamps. Actually, you just die. A stampless death is not a good death. So you're a farmer in the ancient Near East, and you need a good crop or a good lambing season for your family to survive. So what do you do? You turn to your God. You make an offering and try to appease him, and you hope to high heaven that your gift is accepted so that God will bestow his favour upon you and grant you a good season. That's how you know if God liked your offering. And you asked that question earlier. You waited to see what would turn up next season. If you did well and you got a good crop or a big flock or whatever the case may be, then you knew that your offering had paid off. Now I can hear some bleating in my ears objecting to prosperity gospel here. This isn't prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel tells you that you can offer the way Cain did. You just do the things, go through the motions and you'll get what you want. But this text is telling us, and the author of Hebrews confirms, that the attitude of the heart and the faithfulness demonstrated by that offering is what matters. And whether God honours that with reward or otherwise is his decision to make. But I think we can see now why the acceptance of one offering and not the other was evident to all concerned and was not just some arbitrary display of favouritism. There were some interesting Jewish traditions around this issue of how they knew if the sacrifice was all good with God. Oh, yeah? Yeah, you notice how in the text God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? In the Hebrew, there it's more like saying, if you do well, will there not be a lifting up? And given that we're talking about Cain's face and his general demeanor being upset at his rejection, we're supposed to understand this as a vindication. It was a common expression in Hebrew to say that God would lift up your head, lift up your face in order to honor or vindicate you. Because if you were ashamed, you'd be looking downward. But anyway, the rabbis in the medieval period got hold of that expression and theorized that the lifting up must refer to the smoke of the burnt offering. And they said that if your offering was good, then the smoke would go up. And if your offering was bad, then the smoke would not go up. That's the rabbis for you. I wouldn't put so much stock in that idea. Uh, but what happens if, uh, if it's a particularly windy day? Yeah, well, too bad, I guess. Uh, getting back to the whole thing about Cain's face, we have a tendency to read this story as if the whole thing happened on the same day. Uh, but it's almost certainly a longer period of time, especially if we understand that God's response to the offerings had to be waited for and evidenced by the next season's crops and herds. So this isn't a case of 
Cain standing there in front of the altar and beginning to pout and God saying, there, there, never mind, you'll be okay. We're talking about a long season of disappointment, disillusionment and anger in Cain's life. And the text tells us that Cain's face fell. That's an idiomatic way to describe the change in his demeanor, but it isn't necessarily tied to any sense of immediacy. That means that the response of God to Cain's attitude isn't tied only to the events of the sacrifice that day. It's also connected to Cain's present situation where he's fallen on hard times. But that's hard to see in a translation that talks about acceptance rather than vindication. When we read, if you do well, will you not be accepted? We readily view that in the context of the offerings presented earlier. But if that was the case, we should have had the past tense there, like if you had done well, would you not have been accepted? And that's not what we get here. Instead, we should be taking this as an encouragement to persevere in hard times. If you do well, will there not be a lifting up? And in the context of Cain's countenance, that would mean a change in how he feels, having been vindicated by success in spite of adversity. But then God addresses Cain with what appears to be a warning. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The Septuagint translation reads, If you offer correctly, but do not divide correctly, have you not sinned? Be still, his recourse is to you, and you will rule over him. So here the, the Greek marks the first part of the verse as related to Cain's previous sacrifice, and the second half of the verse as related to his brother. We still have an issue of ambiguity in the translation because there's a problem related to the grammar in the Hebrew which is not overcome by either the English or the Greek renderings of the verse. So who was Cain's grandma? Uh, we'll never know, but... Seriously, folks, the problem we have is that the word which is translated as sin, the Hebrew hatat, is a feminine form, while everything else in the sentence is grammatically masculine. This is a problem, particularly for those reading hatat here, as some kind of personal entity like a demon or the personification of sin. That's a pretty common interpretation which arises when you take the crouching language there as some allusion to a predatory beast lying in wait. If the verb drives your interpretation, then you end up with a feminine creature that seems to have these masculine pronouns attached to it. That doesn't work. So the other option that we have is to stop looking at the noun hatat as being the thing referred to by the pronouns he and him in the verse. Sorry about all this grammar talk. It's not really fun, but it's the reality of the text. I've probably lost you now, so let's have a look at the verse again. This is verse 7, and this time we're going to actually use the correct pronouns according to the Hebrew text. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. His desire is to you, but you must rule over him. You'll notice that I also removed the word contrary from that passage because, once again, that's not reflected in the text, and the direction of the desire, either toward or against, is ambiguous. We'll look at that later. Now, you've seen the pronouns in place, so the question is, who is the referent of those pronouns? Because it is not sin. Actually, the answer to that is really obvious. It's Abel. He's the only other person in the story. He's named before and after this verse. It's as plain as the nose on your face when you think about it. Remember that Cain is the one who is the firstborn and the one who has inherited the task of serving the ground. He is the new religious leader. He's the one that Abel must come to. And Cain is supposed to be a ruler over him. Abel is the one who keeps the flocks. He's the one who can provide what Cain needs. And what Cain needs is... What is elsewhere translated as an offering for sin. Another offering? And speaking of offerings, you know what the sin offering is called? Same word translated as sin right here in Genesis 4. 
you'll see this if you have a look in Leviticus, particularly in chapters 4 and 5, where the sin offering is discussed. We haven't got the time, but check it out in your own time if you're curious. So let's have Genesis 4, 7 one more time. I'm going to paraphrase. The name of Abel does not appear in the text, but I'm putting it in there because we talked about the clarification of those pronouns. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, a sin offering is laid in preparation at the entrance. Abel's desire is toward you, and you must rule over him. So when we look at it in these terms, we've solved the problem of the gender pronouns. We've done away with the idea of sin as some kind of demon or personified evil. Sin is never an external force. It always comes from within. That's what Jesus tells us, right? The picture that we're left with is that Abel is trying to help his brother. He's even brought a sin offering and left it there for Cain. That's all well and good, but it does leave us with one question unanswered, and that is, why does Cain require a sin offering at this point? That reminds me of a question uh, I had. Why does Cain require a sin offering at this point? Now, so one last time, we're going to read this passage that we've been looking at today, and this time I'm going to put it in my own words and try and give you a bit of a sense of how it would have been understood by its first audience. So this is my own paraphrase, but hopefully it'll make things clearer. From verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived, and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man, the Lord. And in the same way, she later bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. But at the end of those days, Cain brought to the Lord an appeasement offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord delighted in Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he paid no attention. For Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will not your face be lifted up? And if you do not do well, a sin offering is lying prepared at the entrance. Abel desires to help you, but you must rule over him. Presumably, the entrance or opening being referred to is the way that leads back to the Garden of Eden, which is still functioning as sacred space in the background of this text. Offerings were frequently made at the entrance to sacred space. The same principle was later applied to the temple. Anyway, the question now is, will Cain do those things which would be considered doing well according to the scripture, or will he find another way to deal with his problem? Will Cain redeem himself and be the man that his mother and his brother had hoped he would be? I think we all know the answer to that. Yeah, but what about the, the, the sin offering thing? What about that? That's where we're going to leave it for today. We'll pick up this next week with Cain's response, and that's when I'm going to answer that question. Fair enough, and that was really uh, full on. Uh, now I am in suspense, cliffhanger. And you didn't waffle at all. Well, maybe, maybe you know, some minor waffling. Anyway, we might have time for a quick bit of Q&A. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. So we received this question from the Fallen Angels and Nephilim group on Facebook. Joshua asked, is it possible that Ares, the Greek god of war, and Azazel, the fallen angel, are one and the same, just different times and different places? Mm, okay, well, that is an interesting question. Thanks, Joshua, for sending that one in. We'll start by having a look at Ares, just to get a bit of a feel for how he was understood and how he was worshipped in ancient Greece. Ares is often called the god of war, but more correctly, he would be the god of the spirit of warfare. He had more to do with the aspects of war, like 
bloodlust and slaughter. There's not a great deal of worship directed toward Ares, and he's not generally spoken of favorably by the Greek poets. In fact, according to the mythology, even his own family didn't like him very much. Not even Zeus, who was his dad. One of the more interesting things about Ares was that he was worshipped in places like Sparta, allegedly with human sacrifice, and I say allegedly because we don't have any reliable information on that, and some worshippers sacrificed dogs to him in nocturnal rituals. With the more noble gods, you would sacrifice something that you could sit down and share to eat as a communal feast, but all these detestable lesser gods like Ares, just human dogs, whatever. Ares was thought to lend his name to the Areopagus at Mars Hill, which, of course, is mentioned in the Bible in Acts chapter 17. Mars is, of course, the Roman name for Ares. The Romans actually worshipped Mars a lot more than the Greeks did with Ares. I mentioned the nocturnal sacrificing of dogs to this deity, which would suggest strong ties to the underworld. And although the Greeks thought highly of Zeus, we understand from the Bible that Zeus is more closely aligned to the figure that we know as Satan than to any kind of heavenly being. So from a Christian standpoint, that makes Ares a son of the devil. Not a very nice guy. The question is, could we possibly associate Ares with an entity that we know from the Hebrew Bible who goes by the name of Azazel? I guess if we're going to answer that, then we need to have a look at Azazel. Now, Azazel is a name applied to an entity mentioned in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, in the context of the law concerning the Day of Atonement ritual. Basically, the atonement ritual features two goats. One goat is said to be for Yahweh, and the other goat is said to be for Azazel. And it's that wording which has prompted interpreters to understand this as a reference to some kind of divine being. Other explanations, such as the goat that goes away, or the goat that bears the anger of God, don't really seem to work. Obviously, the book of Leviticus is quite early, and that means that this material probably predates the Greek poets. That being the case, the interpretation and expansion on the person of Azazel found in Second Temple period Jewish texts such as First Enoch and the Apocalypse of Abraham, which are much later than the poets, don't seem to have aggregated any of the material about Ares to the Azazel mythology. The Second Temple period sources consider Azazel to be one of the watchers or sons of God, to use the language of Genesis chapter 6 where First Enoch places the blame for the Genesis 6 event squarely at the feet of Azazel. The Apocalypse of Abraham takes this a step further by claiming that it was Azazel who appeared as the serpent in the Garden of Eden and tempted Eve. All of this is really a bit much for Ares, who's really not at home on that tier of the hierarchy. We also don't have a great deal of overlap in the attributes and functions of these two identities. The closest you get is that one taught people how to make weapons and the other took delight in the shedding of blood in warfare. I just don't think that's enough to make a solid connection. We've also got to consider things like the fact that nobody ever worshipped Azazel. There's absolutely no evidence of any cult devoted to him, and he's not depicted as a warrior at all. The funny thing about Ares is that he's often depicted as a warrior, and yet he frequently lost his battles. So, on the one hand, you have Azazel, the second-tier god in Jewish religion, said to be responsible for most, if not all, of the depravity in the world. And on the other, you have Ares, the generally unloved and unlikable loser of the Greek pantheon, who loves getting into fights and usually doesn't win them. So are they the same god in different times and different places, as, as Joshua has suggested in his question? Well, actually, we found out that the times and places were not really as different as we might have thought, because the Greek poets wrote during the time between the sources that we have which talk about Azazel. And as it turns out, the earliest form of the atonement ritual of Leviticus 16 may have come from rituals performed by the ancient Hurrians, who were the predecessors to the Greeks. 
And yet, in spite of all that overlapping context and the association with warfare, we really have nothing substantial that would suggest the possibility that these two entities may be identified as one. So there you go, Joshua. I hope that's answered your question. And to all our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Stick around for more next week as we dive in once again to Genesis chapter 4 and answer more of your giant questions. Next time, Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Bye-bye. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stephen on Amazon. Paperback, Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com, giantanswers.com. Please follow us on social media, subscribe to the Friendship Show, send us all your questions, and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. All right, let's do it. Trying to fall asleep. Not because you're boring, but because I'm tired. Spite of being boring. Well, tonight's challenge is keep me awake. Other things that are stressing me while I'm venting, um, my dog has dug up my garden immediately adjacent to the fish pond for the third time in two weeks and just excavates bulk dirt and a lot of it goes in the pond and then I have to pull the fish out and clean the whole pond out and then I have to work. Yeah. Clean the patio to get it all clean, ready for summer, get all the moss and whatever off and then the dog just goes and chows in dirt. I'm like, ah, oh, what are you doing? Um, because the dog is um, alone and bored and oh the dog was quite happy to do that while he had company oh okay Uh, no different at all and she was like oh let's get another dog and you know while we've still got a dog you know to to train him I said are you kidding you want you want another dog to be taught how to be that bad no Well, so, uh, yeah, these are the reasons why I don't see her. So, um, well, what's going on? If, if there's an upside, you know, in 30 years, 40 years, you'll be dead. So, something to look forward to. Yes. Uh, I, I, mm, all right. This life is just temporary suffering. Until uh, heavenly reward. That's what my tombstone's going to say. No, it's not. Oh, dear. Yes.
this, this week's episode of the podcast. <laughs> um, you don't make friends with salad. You don't make friends with salad. You don't make friends with salad. And it wasn't just a case of saying, of, you know, yeah. Let me try that again. Oof, that was epic. Well done. Epic nurse. I, I smell amazing. You're still in your work clothes. I know. I know. Anyway, I get up and on at 4 a.m. Those that frustrate me shall die. I mean, um, uh, my problems are going away. Um, if you could just put a plaque on your on your fridge just to uh, warn uh, people. Righto. Thank you very much, my friend. Till next time.